What's your trauma plan? What are you going to do with the trauma you've experienced? And if you've had this job for any amount of time, don't try and tell me that you haven't had or experienced some trauma. Maybe you've dealt with it well so far, and maybe you will for your whole career. But maybe you won't, and you need a plan. Our guest today, a former law enforcement officer, military staff sergeant, he thought he had a plan. And then he found himself with a gun in his hand. And then he came up with a new plan. Stay with us. You are a warrior. You are the very best your nation has to offer. They're asking you to lead. We need a bear cat. It's up to us. So 133, I need somebody who's got a visual of where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. Where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. running eastbound. The one that will bring everyone back. I believe we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. We're going to have an officer shot, an officer shot, 100 block of East Street. Suspect is down, suspect is down. This is The Squad Room. Uh, hello, partners. Welcome back to another episode of The Squad Room. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. I'm a active duty sergeant for a... Sheriff's Department in Southern California. And here on this show, we talk about a wide variety of topics around the life of being a first responder. And I thank you for being with us. Uh, if you've been on the show or listening to the show for a little while, you you know that, like I said, we cover a wide variety of things. But recently, you've noticed probably that we are uh, emphasizing a lot of mental health, PTSD, trauma, that sort of stuff. And that's because we just finished out a year again, where law enforcement officer suicides far surpassed line of duty deaths. And so we need to be able to address this trauma and talk about it and, and deal with it. And our guest today, a man, Dan Jarvis, a man who is a former law enforcement officer who did two stints in the army and suffered, uh, some very serious injuries, uh, uh, while doing his service and came close. And I'm going to let him talk about himself and his story in this. But the end result was that he has now taken his experience, the negative experiences of his life, he's transformed them into something motivational and actionable for other people so that they can have a path forward so they don't have to go through what he did. His foundation and organization is called 22-0. The idea being that we all know this common number that there are 22 veterans who commit suicide every day. And his goal in life and it's not a small one, is to get that number to zero. And if there's anybody who's going to do it, I think Dan is one of the guys who could do it. So we'll let Dan tell his story, but listen all the way through. Listen to him talk about the similarities between military and law enforcement and how he talks is the same way I talk about our badges, our beliefs, actions, discipline, goals, emotions, and our service, and how all of those things must be in alignment. They must We must pay attention to them. We must develop them, and and Dan has that same idea, and he 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 puts that out to twenty two zero. All right, before we get to the interview, I want to emphasize a few things. One is, if you're not on the Facebook group, you should be really on the Facebook group. Uh, you can search out the Squadron Facebook group on Facebook of all places, 
and you can uh, request application to the group because we're doing a lot and I'm doing a lot more video content and interaction in that group than I used to. And I'm trying to engage with you more on a one-on-one basis there. Also sign up for the mailing list. So you're aware of new episodes and there will be uh, content delivered to your mailbox uh, in relation to some of the episodes as well. That comes to my mailing list. You can text the squad room, all one word to four, four, two, two, two to get signed up from your phone. Now, before we start the interview, I also want to thank a couple of people that helped make this possible. This episode of The Squadron was brought to you by Hardhead Veterans. When I finished the academy, I went to our equipment people for my uniforms and was handed an old riot helmet. And I mean old, like Vietnam era old. I have no idea what the ballistic properties are or what it had, and it was extremely uncomfortable digging into my forehead and causing a splitting headache within minutes. That's why I was excited to find Hardhead Veterans and their modern and extremely economical ballistic helmets. Stay tuned because later in the show, I'm going to tell you more about this veteran-owned business and how you can get an even better deal on their top-of-the-line helmet. This episode of The Squad Room is also sponsored by Blue Line Flex. Blue Line Flex is a fitness apparel brand owned and operated by a veteran cop on the East Coast. Justin, the owner, started Blue Line Flex to create a high-quality apparel company that gives back to police charities. The Blue Line Flex t-shirts have an athletic shape and cut, and they're cut longer to allow for easier concealed carry. They also have a line of women's wear, including leggings and insulated protein shakers. You can check them out at bluelineflex.com or on Instagram at bluelineflex. Dan Jarvis of 220, welcome to the show, man. Nice to see you. Hey, Garrett. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for uh, quite some time. Um, I want to give you a chance to talk about your background and and what you're doing now and um and I, I'll, I guess I'll bring it up later, but, but uh, right before we hit record, I told you, you know, I, you're, you're, you're running an organization now called 220. Yes. And I got to be in the room when that idea was first verbalized. And, uh, in the almost year since that's happened, I've watched you really bring this to fruition and uh, I'm excited to talk about what you are doing moving forward. But to talk about what you do moving forward, we need to understand, particularly with you, okay, where you came from. So tell us uh, about yourself and your in your career. Um, initially, right out of high school, I was 17 years old, and I decided that I was going to join the army. Um, had to have parental permission. Uh, my father was career navy, and he took it a lot better than I thought he would. You know, I I, um, I I wanted to do the toughest thing I could, and, and that was in the infantry at the time. Uh, joined the military, uh, went through two year enlistment, did the Army College Fund. Uh, when I got out, uh, went to school and was recalled during the first Gulf War. Uh, however short lived that was, I never made it over there. Six weeks later, I'm back home, back in school, and I decided to pursue a career in law enforcement. My my undergraduate degree was criminology, so wanted to be a police officer. Uh, worked for a local sheriff's office here in Central Florida. Um, I did about four years and maybe six months. Um, started to get really burned out a little bit and uh, took a private sector job with a friend of mine uh, that didn't really pan out too well. Um, and I was going to go back into law enforcement, and then 9-11 happened. Uh, you know, I had made a conscious decision to go back on active duty, uh, reenlisted in the Army and found myself in Hawaii. Um, I was there maybe, I want to say about 12 months before we deployed to Iraq. So we did a, um, a, 
it was initially a 12 month deployment and it turned out to be a 15 month deployment. It was right during the surge when they were plussing up all the troops over there. We literally were, you know, four weeks out from coming home, uh, waiting to get the other unit to do the, the, the change out. And then notification came down, we're being extended. So, uh, which was hard because that was a very, very difficult deployment. Uh, we were, we were in an area called Huija. It was part of what they call the Sunni triangle and our battalion, we lost 17 Americans. So, you know, I kind of would equate that to the size of the sheriff's office that I worked for. We had about 700 sworn deputies. So it'd be like losing 18 deputies, uh, 17 deputies in the course of a year. So, um, that's kind of, you know, how rough it was. We had a pretty kinetic fight. Um, a lot of improvised explosive devices, a lot of sniper attacks, uh, indirect fire. So, I mean, we, you know, it was a different time. We were really taking it to the enemy. Um, but at the same time, we were really taking some significant casualties. Um, right at the end of that deployment, we, um, we had one of our young men that got shot. He wasn't killed, uh, but he was injured. And shortly after that, I was rendered unconscious uh, when an indirect, uh, it was like a 122 millimeter artillery round detonated probably within about 10 to 15 feet of uh, where I was standing. Fortunately, it was on the other side of a HESCO barrier. So the, the barrier absorbed the shrapnel. It was just a concussive force that kind of got me. Um, so I had a little bit of a struggle, you know, shortly after that moment, we, we ended up back in Hawaii, you know, but I, I, you know, I kind of like adjusted. I got back to, to doing my job, um, had to have surgery on my knee uh, and then got orders to, to become a drill sergeant. So, the two years as a drill sergeant was nothing but a blur because we were working like literally 19 hour days, uh, six days a week. I mean, it was it was pretty lengthy. Uh, and then right after uh, leaving drill sergeant duty, um, going to a unit up in Alaska uh, and we were going, I think we were six weeks out of a deployment. Uh, so we went to Afghanistan with that unit. It was a striker brigade and I was a, an infantry squad leader, so I was a staff sergeant. Um, that deployment was very difficult because the rules of engagement has shifted so much. I mean, the first deployment was under uh, President George W. Bush. Uh, rules of engagement were, were significantly different. And then under President Barack Obama, we had a, a major shift on how we had to handle ourselves on the battlefield. Um, I, on that deployment, lost half my men to combat casualties uh, within the six months of fighting season. And one of my soldiers was killed. Uh, we we lost Doug on a convoy when we were uh, we were going off road escorting the explosives guys to defuse an IED up on a hillside that one of the other uh, platoons had encountered. My job uh, was the lead truck commander for the striker units, and so I was a, that was the senior guy on the very front of the convoy. So that's kind of like the thermometer of the patrol. Um, my job was to find anything, and if if it was suspicious, we'd exploit it. Um, EOD would come up, and they'd take care of it. And that morning, um, it was August 19, 2011, when I heard the explosion behind me, I looked back, and I saw that it hit um, our fourth vehicle in the convoy, which was three vehicles behind mine. And I realized it was the MGS striker, which is the main gun system, um, our strikers were relatively secure. Uh, we had just fielded the double V-hole strikers where the, the blast pressure is distributed 
um, through the sides and the back of the of the striker when the, when it hits it. Um, just an engineering marvel how they were able to do that. But um, Doug was driving the MGS, which had a flat flat bottom still. The problem with that is the pressure goes straight up into the into the hull of the vehicle. Um, he got hit so hard when it launched him into the ceiling of the striker. Uh, you know, you know how thick a Kevlar helmet is. His helmet was literally dented in. Wow. Um, yeah. So we we lost him that morning, and man, I hated myself for that. I really, really did. It's one thing to take the life of the enemy. It's another thing to feel responsible for losing one of your own. So, um, and I I was angry because uh, as a leader, you know, we don't ask for help when we know we're struggling, and that was at a point where I was really struggling because. You know, only three weeks before that, I was I was leading a patrol across a river. We had four Americans and four Afghans and one interpreter. And I stepped on a pressure plate and detonated an IED that was literally about five feet away from where I was. So a uh, pretty significant blast injury. Um, and from that moment forward, um, you know, I had sleep disorder issues. I couldn't sleep at all. Uh, first three or four times I closed my eyes to fall asleep. I'd hear the explosion. Uh, I thought we were actually under attack. I'd, I'd wake up and my heart's doing 130 beats a minute and I'm up for the rest of the night at that point. So literally it was like sleep was like an impossibility. And I, you know, I kind of was, I was angry at myself because had I stepped, I taken a knee and stepped back, maybe let another leader take the front of the convoy. Um, they might've caught it. Um, so anyways, you know, I, I dealt with that and, you know, and then you think, you know, we're getting ready to go home. And things couldn't get any worse. And then I got the Red Cross notification that my mom had had a massive heart attack. So now, you know, I have to deal with that. I have to make a decision. Do I stay and finish the, the deployment with my man? Do I go home? Do I say goodbye to my mom? And, you know, my first sergeant was like, I'm going to make the decision for you. You're going home. So the next morning I get on a convoy and I start that journey home. And it literally took uh, took me about four days to get back from my forward operating base uh, to, um, Tampa, Florida. And I didn't make it in time to say goodbye. She had already passed by that point. Um, so did the, you know, the family, the funeral, did all this, the stuff that you do when you, when you bury your mom. Um, it was difficult. Uh, I find myself back in, um, Alaska and I'm still having the issues with a sleep problem. So, I think the first thing I did, you know, I'm by myself. My unit's still in Afghanistan. They're, they're prepping to come home. You know, I went out and bought a case of beer and drank myself until I passed out. And then I realized, oh, I can sleep. It's just going to it's going to require me, you know, consuming alcohol pretty much on a regular basis. And unfortunately, that's a very common um, problem amongst the military. Uh, also, I'd imagine it's probably an issue with first responders because we have a lot. I knew a lot of uh officers who had serious drinking problems. Uh, when I, you know, when I got back and I received my men back, you know, I knew there was going to be a, an adjustment period and I figured, well, you know, things will go back to normal and you know, I'll eventually, um, you know, pick back up and move on and move forward. Um, one month turned into two months, turned into four months. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it's like, this ain't getting any better. You know, it's, it's like totally, taking everything out of me emotionally. I became so angry and, and I would get, I'd get depressed because things weren't getting better. And, and, and I know as a leader, what post-traumatic stress is because 
we have to, you know, look for it in our men. You know, and many times when I would see that in my guys, I'd say, all right, let's go. And they're like, well, where are we going, Sergeant Jarvis? I'm like, we're going to go see the doc. You know, you're going to go see a psychologist or, or talk with somebody. Well, I don't want to. I said, well, tough. I'm taking that responsibility away from you, which I think most of them actually appreciated that because then they could say, oh, Sergeant Jarvis is just taking another one out. But it gave them an opportunity to talk to somebody. And, and, and you know, after the fact, most of them appreciated that. But as a leader, if I were to say, hey, I need help, um, you know, that that's it's almost like it's the end of a career. You know, you don't want to lose the respect of your command. You don't want to lose the respect of your men. Mm-hmm. So so we, you know, many, many um, leaders within the military are actually deciding to take their own lives versus deal with the embarrassment of saying, hey, I need I need help. Um, you know, recently, the United States Navy lost a three star admiral to suicide, right. you know, and, it, and it's like, how do you ask for help at that level? You don't you can't, you know, and. So I find myself getting uh, more and more depressed. And, you know, at the time I wasn't married. I had no children. Um, I was 41, 42 years old. I mean, my last decade had been nothing but serving the country and deploying and, you know, being a drill sergeant, leading soldiers. And I just got to the point where I'm like, you know what? It's been a good run. You know, it's not that I was, you know, scared or whatever. I just like if this is the rest of my life, I don't you know, I don't want it. Um, but you know, the, the crazy thing is, and I've learned since then that if you don't take care of yourself, you know, your body will, will keep score of the stress that it accumulates. And I, I got to that point where I was like, all right, I'm done. Um, I'm checking out. Um, I look at a rifle that I had in the corner of my room and I'm like, you know what? I'm just one second away. It's over. Don't have to worry about it. And then I heard the kids that were in the apartment above me running across the ceiling and I realized, well, crap, I can't do that because it's a high power rifle and my, you know, I didn't want to hurt a kid. Um, I then found myself, all right, I just passed out and then I get a phone call the next morning and it was Ryan. He was my driver from Afghanistan. He's like, hey, Sergeant Jarvis, did you hear about Corey? And I'm like, nobody, what, what's, what's going on? Like, Corey shot and killed himself last night. And I just looked at that rifle I had in my room and I'm like, holy crap, you know, what what would that have done to the unit if two separate people on the same night had decided to end their lives? Um, so that week we had to struggle through, you know, preparations for the memorial service. They brought family in um, and just seeing how the man handled it, I realized that was kind of a, a pivot point for me. It's like, well, I, I don't care how crappy life is. I'm not going to. I'm not going to be the one to give permission to one of my guys to, to take their own lives. Um, so I just kind of fought through it, you know, and after that I ended up having, you know, a couple surgeries. I had one on my right shoulder and then I had one on my left, left shoulder. And, um, because of all the alcohol I had been drinking, the army says, Oh, you're a type two diabetic. Thank you. We no longer need your service. Um, and they processed a, a medical, review board and made the determination, you know, due to age and all that with the, the job that I had, it was time for me to, to, to move on. So, uh, September 11th, 2014, ironically was my last day on active duty and I took off my uniform and that was the, the one last thing that I had that identified me as a person. I was a soldier, I was a non-commissioned officer and now I'm unemployed. So, um, got back to uh, Florida. I drove, actually literally, literally drove from Fort Wainwright, Alaska through Canada to Florida. Um, that took quite a while. It was quite a journey, actually. It's pretty cool. Um, so I get home and I'm finding myself 
you know, I, I had owned a condominium. I'd, I had no bills. You know, one of the things about deployments is you can really put a lot of money away. And um, but I had a retirement check and nothing to do. And then when you stop, you know, and, and this is an issue that that you know your listeners should really take heed with. When you get to that point and your you know your career is over, you've retired. And, and there's nothing left. There's no other chapter. That's when a lot of the demons start coming back. So I, I still I struggled with the alcohol. And but then I made a decision. I said, you know, I'm not going to live the rest of my life this way. I was going to do something to kind of change uh, my trajectory. So uh, that's when, you know, I said, all right, I'm, I'm stop. I'm not going to drink anymore. And that, I mean, that was that was that was a tough thing to do, um, you know, slowing down the alcohol. I mean, when I had been so dependent on it. Uh, because then I started losing my sleep was getting worse. Um, but, you know, at least I wasn't drinking and, and, and I was going back to the gym and I was like, man, I got to get my spiritual life back in order. Um, so I was doing everything I could to try to fix things. Uh, and then I met somebody uh, which kind of changed everything. And my um, my wife, Gwinnell, and I, we went out on our first date in January of 2015. And we were married April of 2016. And, uh, you know, I had in that time frame, I had actually gone back into law enforcement. Um, I had to go back through the academy, go back and get my standards back. And um, I did that for about another two years. And I had a lot of back issues uh, from all the, the 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 torture that I put my body through as a soldier. I tried going up a mountain in Afghanistan at 40 years old with 100 pounds on your back. It's not fun, you know, not fun at all. Um, but so I left sheriff's office. And then again, I had nothing to do. And that's when the, the dream started coming back. And, you know, my wife would literally like kind of gently nudge me at night to try to wake me up. But I'd sweat so bad because um, I, I seriously was like I was doing cardio. So my wife, you know, she asked, she was, hey, what was what did you do in the military? I mean, she didn't really know. I never really shared any stories with her. And I really didn't want to because, you know, it's there's nothing there's nothing awesome about war. There's nothing beautiful about war. It's, it's pretty ugly. Um, although you do make some really solid friendships uh, with the men that you served with. Um, so I started sharing stuff with her and then she was like, Oh my gosh, you have got to go talk to somebody. Um, so, I mean, she, I mean, I was, for me, what I was telling her, I thought was normal. Not everybody doesn't, you know, experience this. <laughs> so, so she, uh, she encouraged and I did, I did, I went to the VA, which a lot of vets do. Um, and that was, uh, not a very pleasant experience. Um, the probably their gold seal standard for treatment for post-traumatic stress. I was diagnosed post-traumatic stress and major depressive disorder. And the first thing they want to do is prescribe medications. And then they put you through this. Um, there's a therapy called prolonged exposure. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, basically it's a 14 week um, process where you, you sit there for an hour and a half and you just loop the same story over and over to the, to the, to the psychologist and literally they have to reopen all of the those um, emotional wounds and talk about, you know, the specific event of a specific day. And this is a 14 week process and they give you homework and stuff and just crazy things like, hey, sit in your office in your your house and listen to taps for an hour every day. You know, that's a that's an emotional event for a lot of guys who have sure. lost a lot of friends. Absolutely. You know, you hear you you hear that and it's just like it just hits you and gut punches you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So the the VA canceled an appointment and I was like, well, crap, this is supposed to be every week. And I, I rescheduled and couldn't get me in for four more weeks. 
I'm like, great. And then I went to another appointment and then they canceled another appointment. I couldn't get in for eight more weeks. And I'm like, I'm done. So I stopped going to the VA. I'm like, you know, screw this. And uh, later found out that that specific therapy that the VA does, they have an 80% dropout rate for uh-huh. veterans. Like seriously, like it, and the veterans that commit suicide under the VA health system is typically during that, that type of treatment. You know, you kind of look at it, you know, it's like if you have a tourniquet on an arterial wound and you pull the tourniquet off, the blood's going to go everywhere. It's the same thing with that type of therapy. It's basically you're taking the tourniquet off the emotion and the emotion just goes everywhere. Um, so it's very difficult. Um, and then my wife, uh, she works for the sheriff's office as well, but she's a, a senior level administrator and she brings leadership trainer trainers into the agency for sergeants and above. And she brought a gentleman uh, to do training. His name is Scott Mann. We both know Scott. Matter of fact, that's how we met. Yep. Um, Scott's a retired Army uh, Green Beret lieutenant colonel. And uh, he invited me. We went out to dinner and we talked a little bit. And, you know, he was an officer. I was a non-commissioned officer. So, you know, we're doing the proverbial butt sniffing. You know, it's like it'd be like a, a deputy with a sheriff, you know, hmm, you know, whatever. So he invited me to to attend his Spartans Rising event. And that's where you and I met. And that was that was only April of last year. And met Doc Diego um, Diego Hernandez, who's a clinical psychologist, and I'm asking him, I said, Doc, what the heck is post-traumatic stress and why can't we fix it? Doc's, he explained it to me in terms that, you know, that I really understood it. Um, and for your audience, the all post-traumatic stress is we experience a trauma, an, an emotional trauma, and if we don't process the trauma, and it st- it'll stay in our short-term memory. So with that being stuck in the short-term uh, it's constantly available for recall. So if you have a nightmare, that's because you have um, the memory fresh for you. If you have um, you know, a flashback, it's because it's in your short-term memory still. If you have a, re- you know, a thought process that just kind of comes in, um, it's because it's always there and we don't process it to the long term. And I didn't realize this, but when we sleep at night and get rest, we have what, the, our, what we call as the REM sleep cycle. And that's when the brain actually processes the data from the day's events in the last couple of days and moves the, the memory and files it away to the long term storage. Uh, and then then it doesn't become an issue. You know, 80 percent of those who experience trauma will process memories just fine. They'll go back to sleep. You know, but my thing was sleep deprivation and self-medication. So I never got to the point where I could process uh, the memories and put the memories where they belong. So I told Doc, I said, you know, I got to I got to come in. I got to try some of this 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 therapy that he's talking about. And, and what he focuses on is the accelerated resolution therapy. Um, and that's basically off of based on eye movements. Similar. It was developed after the EMDR mm-hmm. um, process. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Yep. Yeah, we've had but, Doc on the show even. OK, perfect. Well, the. So I go to a session with Doc um, and what he did is he connected me with an organization uh, that actually would pay for therapy for post 9-11 veterans because I wasn't working at the time and started seeing Doc. And I, literally within the first session, I was like, man, this is pretty cool. You know, I go home and I'm talking to my wife and I'm telling her about it. And, and she's like, whoa, stop. I'm like, what? She's like, who are you and where is my husband? You know, <laughs> I was like, well, you know, I just, I was excited again. You know, I was like, you know, you know, I, know, I now know how I can fix this. Um, right. Because we, we, we look at post-traumatic stress like it's an illness and it can be managed long term. 
And the fact is that couldn't be farther from the truth. You know, post-traumatic stress is an injury to the brain where our brain doesn't actually process the way it's supposed to. So, and then also, you know, I met with Tom Padilla. He was also in that Spartans Rising event. Yeah. Um, he is connected with another organization that does a similar memory reconsolidation to the art, but it's called the Reconsolidation Traumatic Memories Protocol. Um, so I do a video and I put it out on my social media. It's like, you know what, you know, power of vulnerability. You got to throw it out there. You know, Scott kind of has taught me to, to tell the story. Uh, in terms where I can, you know, really connect with people. So I tell my story to a camera as I'm holding it in my hand, which is really weird to do. And then I put it out on uh, Facebook and that the thing got circulated like 9,000 times. And then I started having people call me, you know, message me, reach out to me. Um, and I was surprised. I, I couldn't believe it that I actually had a, um, a deputy from the County over, uh, from where I live now, who saw the video, and I'm like, "How did you? How did you find this?" And she goes, "Well, a friend of mine from Tennessee saw the video and sent it to me." <laughs> so I'm like, "That's just crazy to me." So I, my wife and I realized that, you know, we we could really make an impact in this space. You know, I'm not doing anything, so you know, I finally figured out what I want to be when I grew up. And unfortunately, it took me 48 years to get there. You know, <laughs> so we started the 220. Uh, the number 22 is significant for. Uh, those of us in the vet, the military and veteran space is the number of veteran suicides per day. Uh, the VA has come in and kind of revised that number a little bit. I think they 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 said, well, it's not 22, it's 20 20.2. No, it's not much better. So, um, splitting hairs on that. Yeah. So, but like you know, one of the things that I've learned when I went out with Tom Padilla to Albuquerque um, to to see how the RTM protocol works. And I get out there and, and Tom has done like unbelievable stuff with, with Dr. Burke and the research and recognition project. He literally self-funded the first training in, in the United States. Uh -huh. uh, now I think between the art and the RTM, they've got a pretty good lock on fixing post-traumatic stress. Um, so I told the, um, the chief uh, trainer for research and recognition, his name is Alan Canerva. Uh, he's a Canadian. He was a, he was a, a, a pilot in the Canadian military um, he's, he's the one that leads the instruction for it. And I'm like, I want to go through this protocol. You know, I want to, I want to try it. So he, and the thing is the protocol is not therapy, which I think is pretty cool because you know, most of us guys, we kind of get this John Wayne mindset. We don't want to talk therapy. You know, it's considered a neurological intervention. Um, he's had a lot of recent, uh, developments with that RTM. He, he's now been accepted, um, they're researching it through the, the, the Walter Reed hospital. Uh, they're doing an 18 month study. The VA is now doing a study. Um, and that's huge because, you know, once they recognize it, then it'll become more mainstream. Um, so I asked him, I said, I want to go through this. And he, he puts me up on the stand. Uh, the, the, one of the last traumas that I was, I was dealing with was the death of my mom, not being there for her. Uh, she had a lot of health issues and, you know, me deploying and, I mean, I saw her once a year, maybe twice a year if I was lucky. Um, so for the, really the last eight years of her life, you know, I've, I've pretty much, you know, not been present. And, you know, that's anybody can relate to that. I mean, even you as a police officer or deputy sheriff, you, you, you know. Oh, sure. Yeah. You got you got to um, you got to take care of yourself and your family. But, you know, the stress that we put on the family for the jobs that we do. Um, I oh. felt a lot of guilt that, you know, maybe I played part of her 
you know, downfall with her health, you know, the stress and, and whatnot. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I tell uh, Alan, I said, I want to do this. So he's like, you want to do it today? I said, yeah. He said, how about in 10 minutes? I'm like, sure. He goes, you want to do it in front of the class? I'm like, yeah, no, no big deal. <laughs> so it's a, it's a class full of skeptical mental health counselors who haven't really fully bought in yet. And I go through this protocol with him and it's, it's different than the ART. It's a little bit different. Um, basically what they do is they kind of get you into the thought of, of the memory. And then once you have a reaction to it where they see that, you know, it's something's bothering you or you, you're, you know, you might blood pressure might be going up. You might be breathing. They'll pull you out of it in what they call a break state. And at the break state, they run the protocol. you go through the protocol and it's got to do with disassociating the memory. They'll, They'll, they'll bookend the memory, the beginning and end, and they'll they'll run a, a script between the two. So literally the counselor is doing nothing but coaching you through this process. You're actually having to do the work. Mm-hmm. And then there's a point where you got to drain the color out of it. So it's like an old black and white movie. And that is difficult. That takes a little bit of work. And then you get to the point where you then put yourself up in a movie projector room in the theater and you're watching yourself in the theater watch the movie. Mm. So you're not watching the movie. So you're totally disassociated from the event. And then they have you go back into it. And then they have you run it in reverse. And then you're like, that that was weird. Because when I did it, I felt this little tingle in the base of my neck. Um, and then I'm like, oh, that's pretty wild. And they'll have you rate the stress level that you're at, 0 to 10. 0 being no negative emotions, 10 being negative um, and that specific memory, I was pretty high. I was probably about an eight. And then I'm finding myself thinking about it. I'm at like a two and I'm like, this is just weird. <laughs> so I, um, I do the, the visualization for a different outcome and they'll tell you, you know, think about a better, better outcome of the event. And literally all you're doing is you're, you're, you're projecting a different emotion and then, the emotion imprints over the old emotion. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like a new emotional state is attached to the memory. And then all of a sudden it clears the entire memory up. And you're like, I mean, you're at a zero, you're, you're able to tell the whole story in, in vivid detail. And you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, look at Alan. I'm like, what is, is some kind of Jedi mind trick? Is this like hypnosis? What is now? It's not, it's just a, uh, just a process that, you know, the, the, the vulnerability of the memory um, can be, you know, overwritten by a new emotional state. Um, so that happens. So I've been helping uh, Tom Padilla with his his stuff, and um, with a twenty two zero, you know, we basically created a website, and now we're connecting veterans and first responders with counselors. Uh, we're helping them, you know, conduct some fundraising for trainers. You know, and, and that Albuquerque one, we flew three counselors out. And two of those counselors are very active in what they do. And since October 1st have cleared between the two of them about 28 cases of post-traumatic stress. Wow. And I mean, that's significant. You know, that's just two counselors in a very short amount of time. So, you know, I'm I'm finding myself in this space, you know, learning everything I can about the brain. It kind of scares me. Um, Having a conversation with Doc Diego and actually be able to understand what he's talking about. It's like, that's pretty wild. Uh, So, Get into what we're doing now. I mean, yesterday I was down in uh, Parkland, Florida, where they had the the, the shooting last uh, Valentine's Day. Yeah, the school. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, at the school. So um, some of the counselors down there have been reaching out. 
Hi, my name is Kit Dump, and I am the Sales and Marketing Director for Hardhead Veterans. Hardhead Veterans believes that police should have the best equipment available to them. That's why Hardhead Veterans exists. I come from a military family. As far as I can think back, that was what was going to happen. When I first got into the military, when I first checked into my first team, we were issued what was called the Mitch helmet, a mid-ear type cut helmet. We wore those things for every operation, every mission. Helmets at that time were around $1,500 for a decent quality, high cut ballistic helmet that worked well with everything you'd want it to do. With helmets, a lot of people see the resistance to penetration test as the end all be all, and our helmets certainly pass that test for level 3A, but there's a whole nother level of tests publish that data directly on our website, and you can actually compare apples to apples there and see what helmets are performing at and the actual lab data there. There are quite a few companies now that have come out and are selling very similar helmets that do not meet the full battery of tests. Departments would love to outfit all their guys with helmets. That's that's really out of the question for most departments. The reaction has been amazing. Go look at our reviews on Facebook or Google. I'm Kit Dump, and our mission is to help you guys stay safe. These kids are still stuck, and you know there's issues with first responders, and, and of course now, I think, it's kind of mind-boggling in the state of Florida. They just recognize post-traumatic stress as a um, a reason to put somebody on workers' comp. You know, before it used to be um, you had to have an injury, and the injury had to result in post-traumatic stress, which is ridiculous. Um, but you know, the cool thing is we're now organizing a training down in um, Parkland uh, at the end of this month. We're going to be down there. We're probably going to get about um, twenty to thirty counselors trained. And we're doing the fundraising and helping, um, you know, supplement the the counselors, you know, mental health counselors. They, they make about as much money as police officers. So trying to ask one of them to pay twenty five hundred bucks is, is uh, it's a quite a big task. So we're doing fundraising to to try to mitigate that cost for them. Um, and I think once they go down there and they start having successes in treating the children and the first responders down there, I think. Uh, Frank Burke and his organization is just going to take off and they're probably going to have more training um, sites set up than they're going to know what to do with. You know, another project we're going to do is go out to Vegas um, with the Vegas shooting, uh, the, the Harvest Festival. So um, the cool thing is, and, and I hope your your listeners understand that the, the protocol is actually you could do it within um, an immediate time frame after a, a traumatic event. And so, like, if, you know, if you're a police officer and you're forced to, um, you know, shoot or kill an emotionally disturbed person, you know, or have to work a homicide investigation where you have three or four family members dead or a traffic homicide police, a uh, police officer who's got to investigate a traffic fatality with like an entire family in there, um, you can literally have the protocol done and resolve the traumatic emotions almost immediately. So, you know, you'll never develop the post-traumatic stress. So, you know, in a perfect world, you would have um, an event occur and have the resources available for you to actually, hey, let's just go take care of it, clear your junk out and go back to work. You know, 
Um, the stress that we accumulate, I have a friend of mine who is a, he was a Delta operator for the, for special forces. Um, he had a five man Delta team that so far three of them have left service and killed themselves. Mm. He attempted to take his own life. Um, we got him through the RTM protocol from the very first session he started sleeping again and we're talking, he's been out of the military. He was first Gulf war. He's been out of the military and been struggling to, to get back to a normal drinks every night has alcohol dependency issues. You know, it's the same things that I did, you know, but I didn't have to go 20 years, you know, with that kind of an issue. Um, there are comorbidities that come with stress with, with post-traumatic stress. He developed, um, kidney cancer, um, you know, Health wise, you know, in law enforcement, you know, we had we've had officers just stroke out and drop dead, heart attacks, drop dead. Um, Pinellas County Sheriff's Office has had two suicides since uh, November of 2017, one as recent as a month ago. Mm-hmm. Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office has had um, a deputy murder three members of his family and then kill himself. And then they had another deputy who murdered somebody and killed themselves. You know, and it's, it's just crazy. We're losing more police officers and firefighters, paramedics to to our own hand than we are to line of duty deaths. Yep. Yeah. But the, the crazy thing is we're at a point now where there's solutions out there. You know, your your audience should be aware that this between the reconsolidation traumatic memories protocol and accelerated resolution therapy. If you're struggling, you, you seriously need to reach out to somebody. Um there is no reason to suffer. And all it is, it, it's not the visual of the of the stuff that we see that's the problem. It's the emotion that we attach to the visual. And unfortunately, a lot of that comes from our own baggage that we've had be- since before we worked law enforcement. Um, and the protocol for the RTM, the, the youngest it's been successfully uh, utilized on is a child seven years of age. So imagine what that's going to look like if you could take a victim of a rape or, or whatever, and literally um, clear out the trauma and put a, put a nine-year-old on a witness stand and say, that guy did this to me, blah, 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 blah. You're probably going to have a lot more people out there pleading guilty to, um, you know, before even going to a witness stand. Yeah. So, so- I want to go back to a couple of things you touched on because uh, there's just some interesting points. Um, you know, one is you're talking about as a leader, it's hard to ask for help. And I find that's absolutely accurate as you go in law enforcement. I'm sure it's the same in the military, but in law enforcement, as you go up the chain, there are fewer and fewer people, right? It's, it's like a pyramid. There are fewer people at your level who you can converse with, who you can confide in, who are sharing that same experience that you are, right? And True. that I have found at times, I, the one, one of the things I was surprised most about when I became a sergeant was how lonely that position can be sometimes. Uh, in the sense that, you know, the guys are, are the guys. They're off there doing their thing and they're doing the work. You're not in that mode anymore. You're also now the supervisor. So there's a, sometimes a natural reluctance to include you. Um, just because you're the supervisor, not because of a personality issue and that you, we then, yeah, we then slowly, slowly begin to silo ourselves off and then you turn around and all of a sudden nobody's left. Um, and I thought that was an interesting point you made and that you felt the same way. And then this idea of giving permission to your guys, 
I want to I want to touch on that and explain that a little bit more for me. I mean, you were you're about you you were as close as you could be to pulling that trigger without without doing it, right? Yes. And and uh, I, I, I get, you got to think that for some reason those footsteps occurred above your bed or above your apartment at that moment for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or or you're just <laughs> just you you lucked out that you had a moment to, something something kind of snapped you out of it and, and provoked you to at least extend or wait right and in that time frame then you learned about the death of of someone uh that you were close with explain that idea though of giving permission to your guys because i think that can extend to almost anything a leader does we give them permission by the way we act is that what you're saying yes well the giving permission to my guys for me you know i we we're, we lose quite a bit of people active duty to suicides we're probably um, comparable to the first responder community. More veterans are committing suicide, but they are still losing a lot of active duty guys. So when I was a drill sergeant at Fort Knox, we had a, uh, a drill sergeant who took a shotgun and went out to one of the ranges on base and killed himself. And, and then you just realize, man, that is just why what's, you know, at that moment, I didn't understand. I mean, you know, I was part of the problem and being the alpha male and, you know, suck it up, you know, do what you got to do. Um, but when I deployed and went to, um, I went to Afghanistan and came back, I had a really good friend of mine who he was a staff sergeant and I kept trying to tell him, Hey, look, man, you need to go talk to somebody. But he was like me, I was a staff sergeant as well. Um, and I knew this young man as a as a baby soldier when he was just a, a private in my unit in Iraq. He was one of my men. And I knew how he was and I knew his caliber. But when he came home from Afghanistan, he had a couple blast injuries as I did. And he was spiraling out of control. And I'm trying to help him out. Um, and something happens with him. He ends up in trouble. And there he gets field graded um, and then goes – before the battalion commander, he asked me if I'd speak on his behalf. And, and I did that. I went, I went to speak with his commander who was totally different than mine. Um, the, the army made me a drill sergeant. So I really didn't have a, a really good filter. Uh, they asked for him for permission to speak freely. He said, sure, go ahead. I said, I know you were not, you know, Sergeant Morton's commander, but his previous command failed him miserably. And the Sergeant major that was there was looking at me like he wanted to pull my throat out you know you don't talk to a colonel that because what do you mean i said you know he was in a blast injury twice back to back within a week i said you have to be aware of the the cognitive effects that that has on a person um he said i am and and why 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 did the command fail him i said well because he came home from deployment early and never processed uh through the um, the process that they do for the medical uh long story short on him it ended up buying him some time with the military. They didn't kick him out. They were going to kick him out with a dishonorable. So they just, they got him to get help. Um, and that, from that point forward, I was, I realized, you know, it was my responsibility, not only for people that I know, but for the men that work for me, that I need to be able to tell them that it's okay to ask for help. Um, and that's what I would do. I, I would literally say, all right, let's go. And, and, and the cool thing is I, w- I would even have men, call me after I retired from the military, you know, and have to walk them back off the ledge a little bit. But this is before I knew anything uh, about the successful treatments out there. 
Um, but as a leader, you've got to have enough compassion for your men. I mean, you, I, I'm sure you've seen some pretty horrific events over the course of your 14-year career. Um, you guys have had active shooters in South Southern California. I mean, I mean, look at the fires out there. You know, how, how, how do you think your men are affected knowing that, wow, this family just lost everything, you know? I mean, that's trauma in itself, you know? But we like to think that we're, we're tough guys, um, and we, we, you know, we can handle it and we can move past it. But, you know, we do stupid things. We, we, you know, you know, we go out with our buddies and we drink, you know, we do all, all of this stuff and that's how we kind of handle it. Um, but that has a negative effect on the, on the health of the officer as well. Long-term short-term, it feels great, but long-term it's not so good, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then you got the officer out there who's, um, working as many extra details as he possibly can because, you know, cops don't make a lot of money and they're, they're trying to make a little bit of extra cash and, and they really don't get any downtime. And then you start seeing families um, being affected by the absence of the husband or the absence of the father, the, the disengagement. Um, we, we tend to distance ourselves. Uh, I, you know, I, I really wish that, you know, law enforcement – uh, wasn't as, as, um, well, let's just say cops are requested and required to do more than probably any other profession out there. And they keep putting more and more onto police officers. You know, I mean, it's like you, people don't understand the amount of training it takes to be a cop. And then, you know, having to go out there and make a split second decision. And then everybody else has all the time in the world to, to second guess what, the, what you what you did, you know, and not even thinking about how what's the emotional state of the officer, you know, it's not a normal act to kill somebody. It's not, and you know, it happens, and that's part of the job. You know, I have a friend, a couple friends here at the sheriff's office where I worked with that were forced to um, to kill individuals, and you know, that's that's just not normal. Um, we 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 do what we do, and we handle it. And we you know, we may joke about it because that's the way we handle the stress. But uh, there will be a day of reckoning when those those emotional um, thoughts are going to come back. So you got to take care of yourself. You have to have some kind of fitness plan. You have to have some kind of um, let's eat healthy plan. You know, what, what is it? Five years after retirement that a lot of police officers, you know, die. Yeah. You know, you know, that's like, you know, you, you give your entire life to, for, to a profession and a career um, and, you know, our health gets affected by it. So now, yeah, I want to touch on the, uh, uh, I want to talk about the alcohol because that's, yeah. that's a big one for a lot of people. And it's, um, you know, it serves it's, to some people, it serves a lot of purposes or, or dual several purposes, but how did you, how did you quit or did you just cut back? And, and what was that process like? What, what, what did you do? I know you said you just decided, but, there must have been something else than to just in one snap second decide yeah. you weren't going to do it. Yeah, it definitely wasn't an overnight thing. I did cut back uh, considerably, and I just kind of slowly came off of it. And, but when I, I think when I got involved with my my wife, um, I had something else to occupy occupy my time, mm-hmm. and we didn't, you know, we didn't drink a lot together because we were having too much fun. We didn't need it, which helped because over time, you know, they say it takes 45 days for the brain to hardwire a new habit. So eventually I got to the point where, 
oh, I don't need it anymore. My, my new normal uh, did not require me to have the alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've had anything to drink probably in the last eight months. Hmm. So, which is good, you know, yeah, of course. I, I, I just, I just haven't felt the need for it. Um, yeah, I wouldn't mind a glass of wine every once in a while, but you know, I, it came down to most of the alcohol that I would consume would be to numb something, you know, to, you know, let me, let me sleep. Let me, um, you know, I really don't want to think about all these things that are coming back up. Yeah. Um, social interaction. It's easier to interact socially sometimes. Um, and that's the, the, the thing with alcohol is it's, it's socially acceptable, um, especially in your first responder professions. I right. mean, all my family have been military. All the males in our family have been just about every branch of military covered and all of them have been first responders. So um, with the exception of my mom's side, but my dad's side of the family. So, you know, drinking has always been a huge part of even our fo- social family structure. Mm-hmm. But that's but that's why. Um, yeah. You know, it's, you know, I would suggest it too. I think Doc Diego helped me understand as we age, um, our testosterone levels will drop off and alcohol drops testosterone. Well, I I don't think any guy wants that to happen. So that was like, man, I better stop drinking so much. You know, my wife's not going to like that. (laughs) So Uh, 22 zero. Yes. That's now your organization. Uh, what, you know, there's, there's a lot. A lot. There is a, a attention given, I think, I think, to the the veteran suicides, and it's obviously an important issue. And, um, but what was it about your experience that provoked you to jump in with your organization? Meaning, a lot. This, you know, there are organizations out there that are trying to bring attention to this in one way or another, um, but. To me, it strikes me that you know you 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 struggled first time out of the military because you were lacking the purpose and sense of of ownership over that job that you had in the military. You got it again when you went back into the military, uh, but then uh, again left the military and lost it. But then you had that again when you went to the sheriff's office again. So having your mission, it's it, this seems like it's your personal mission, and that is driving you. Is that is that is that fair? Uh, actually, the cool thing about that is, yeah, that's absolutely fair. Uh, when Alan and I were talking out in Albuquerque and we said our goodbyes, he looks at me and goes, it's nice to have a mission, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And you've got to have a mission. You've got to have a purpose no matter what it is. And um, when you retire from law enforcement, you know what? All that is is one chapter of your life. It's time to start a new one. You know, write a book, you know, do whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, do a TED talk, you know. Um, whatever it is, you know, you can work towards something. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the veteran suicide, the 22 a day, um, is problematic. Uh, but you know, like I said, you know, back to the first responders as well, they don't even track the suicides of people who were first responders that leave that profession like yeah. they do the military. I, I don't even think that they want to, to study that number as well. They should, that'd be a, probably a good PhD for somebody to work on. Um, but the, the thing with the military is, and and I tell people this, you know, there's a lot of senior level law enforcement that don't think that law enforcement can suffer the same post-traumatic stress that the military guys, because of what we see in war, but that's just not true. The, the post-traumatic stress comes from getting stuck in the fight or flight. 
And that's the reality of it. You know, you get up to the level of fight or flight where we then, you know, basically react at the lowest instinctive level and then we get stuck there. And then your, your body's spitting cortisol constantly to your brain, which is your stress hormone. And, you know, you either fight, freeze or you flee. You know, that's that's the process. So but when we come home, that 20 percent of us that don't get out of that fight or flight, that's when we have the post-traumatic stress. Now, let's go look at law enforcement. You guys are fight or flight 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There is no there's no off uh, button for y'all. You know, when, when we go to work, we work a 12 hour shift. We go home. We go to bed. We wake up. We do it all over again. This happens for an entire career, sometimes 25, 30 years for people. Think about the health implications that that has for law enforcement officers. And that's why you're seeing heart disease. That's why you're seeing strokes. That's why you're seeing you know, depression and post-traumatic stress and all the other stuff. Because police officers never get a chance to come down from the fight or flight. That's that, And that's problematic. So the cool thing with the, the RTM and, and – as it becomes more mainstream and readily available, you know, you literally can just, it, what it does is it, it shuts off the fight or flight response. So you can literally come out of fight or flight um, and then get back into that as Scott calls rest and digest, you know, because you got to be able to, to process and rest and you know, your body's got to have recovery time has to mm-hmm. you know, don't work seven days a week, 365 days a year. So for your young viewers out there who want to, make a lot of money on signal 15s or as we called it or special details. It's not worth it. Yeah. You know, not at all. All right, Dan, where can people find you? Where can they learn more about your mission and how to help or how to uh, get help and, uh, and learn more about RTM from you? We have a website called www.22thenumber220zero.org. Uh, we have a 220 Facebook page. Um, they can reach out to us and what we do is we, we try to find the counselor closest to them and it may not be RTM. It could be ART. Um, we're not specific to anyone. Um, I think the RTM is profound and I think a lot of people will find some good use out of it, but accelerate resolution therapy is just as good. Um, but what we do is we try to find the resources, uh, your, your combat vets that are post nine 11, they don't want to, um, don't want to ask for help through their agencies. They can contact the camaraderie foundation or they can contact us and we'll put them in touch and they'll, they'll pay for offsite therapy that, that never gets reported back to uh, their agencies and nothing gets reported back to the VA as well. So, and how about socials? Are you on Facebook or Instagram with 220? Uh, I'm on Facebook at 220. Um, Instagram, we just started one, but I'm, I'm, I haven't even got my head around Facebook yet. You know, like I said, I'm 48. I'm not a, I'm not a millennial. I'm not a brilliant genius like some of these young kids are. Yeah, but I'm working on it. So you'll get there. You'll get I'm there. Good. Dan, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. What a great conversation. Um, really, some some valuable lessons about just because you're a leader doesn't mean that your uh, your your armor is uh, impenetrable from this and that. As a leader, we give our permission to our people by the way we act and the way we present, and that um, there's no there's no shame or fear or embarrassment in, in resolving what is a neurological issue. So, uh, thanks for your time, thanks for your service. I love what you're doing with twenty two zero, and uh, luckily I get to connect up with you later this year, and uh, maybe we'll do a a part two from there. Amen. Let's do it, brother. All right. Take care. For- Stay safe, Gary. Thank you. All right, thanks for listening to this episode of The Squad Room. If you like what you heard, if you got something out of this episode with Dan, please share it with somebody who needs to hear it. <clears throat> Grab their phone out of their hand, hit share, 
grab your phone and hit share, send it to somebody, email, text, whatever you got to do. But some of this information is important. RTM or ART or EDMR or just talking to somebody could save a life. It really could. All right. To get more information on Dan, go to 220.org. And to get more information in the show notes, you can go to thesquadroom.net and you'll find this episode right up there. And you'll get uh, show notes, links, all that sort of stuff as well. And like I said, join our Facebook group, join the mailing list. You can text the squadroom, all one word to 44222 to get signed up from your phone. And I especially want to thank Hardhead Veterans for their support of the show. You can get $20 off of your own ballistic helmet by using the code squadroom on their website at hardheadveterans.com. Until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.